to the front line, you know, the person serving the customer on the front line. If the front line employee or everybody through that chain cannot explain the link to what they're doing and why it's important for the mission of the organization, then you're at risk of them feeling like this is just a job, right? This is just a job and I'm going to leave for the next, I'm going to leave for the next better thing that comes along. But when you do a terrific job saying, here's why you're doing the thing. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Steve Goldback, Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Jess, nice to be here. So tell us about, tell us about the new book. So we got together right at the beginning of the pandemic, and Jeff, my co-author, Jeff Tuff, said, you know, should we write another book? And we decided it would be kind of fun to try to write a follow-up to Detonate all on Zoom, all, all remote from each other. And we took, the, we took the challenge. And one of, the things that, one of the things that sort of stimulated the book was the general response to the pandemic. Because what we, what we were observing at the time was there was a lot of stuff that seemed to be, seemed to be a matter of when it was going to happen as opposed to if it was going to happen related to the pandemic. And there was a handful of, we were inspired by the response that Taiwan had to the pandemic. And it turns out that their vice president is an epidemiologist. And so one of the reasons why they had such a successful response was because the gut instincts of their leaders were different because they had someone with experience in experience in 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 the in the relevant content everyone else was to some extent projecting linearly about what would happen they were saying oh it'll be another few weeks or another few weeks and they didn't seem to have a sense of how this thing would play out and what was and what was required and we sort of said that was an interesting concept to start to explore because we see that pattern of challenges in the in the business world in general there are lots of different things that should be considered a matter of when they're going to happen rather than a matter of if but oftentimes we miss those trends we then deny those trends we then respond meekly to those trends like we don't actually do anything about them and then finally we kind of you know we kind of wish them away and and we overanalyze them so we were enthusiastic about that problem. And we just kept tugging on and kept tugging on that thread, Jess. Yeah. Listen, I have a ton of questions about the book. What I think I want to start with, though, is let's talk about your role, like chief strategy officer. That sounds like a cool job. It's been it's been a ride. It's been a fun. I've had this role in the firm for six and a half years. It's terrific. It's trying to take what I did in client service for 20 years and apply it to Deloitte. And we're like any large organization, we have lots of decisions that we need to make. And I think of my job as trying to help our management team go through the same uh, good process to get to great decisions and differentiate us from our competitors. So it's fun to do. We've got such a broad scope of businesses, whether it's our audit, tax, our advisory or financial advisory practice or risk advisory practice or our consultancy um, we've got such a breadth of businesses and it's a great platform 
to work on and and we've got terrific competitors who keep me on my who keep me uh, me on my toes. So it's a it's a good gig. I think chief strategy officers the biggest mistake they tend to make is they think that they own the strategy. I try not to fall prey to that. I think that our executive teams um, have to own the strategy, and I'm just here to help facilitate better decisions and to you know, like the book says, to provoke better discussions and and tee up things that we need to decide upon collectively. When you think about the principles of that, of like helping helping these top business professionals make the smartest decisions, what are what are maybe some of the soft skills or some of the things that you do to try to not tell anybody they're wrong? Or like, how do you make it more magnetic for them to want to maybe consider some things they haven't so far? That's a great question, Jess. And it's one that I thought a lot about while I was in client service. And I thought I've thought a lot more about it. I I would say the one thing you don't do or doesn't work, I'm convinced just does not work, is walk in there and tell them this is the answer, right? Because people don't, like if you, if you agree with me that strategy, there is no value created by a piece of paper or a PowerPoint document. Literally zero value is created by that. You have to take that value, you have to take what's on that piece of paper and actually do something real with it in the real world. And what, peop- what human behavior tells us is that someone who purports themselves to be smart walks in and says, here's the answer, and the other person on the other end, who's the responsible executive, says, "Oh, thank you so much. I didn't, I didn't realize. You know, if I had just asked you sooner, I would have had the right answer." That almost never gets done in the real world. So, like, if you want to have stuff get done, then don't don't do that thing. And so, the thing that I think makes the biggest difference is worry about helping the other person on the other end or the the rest of the team come up with, they have to be active in coming up with the ideas themselves and they have to, they have to wrestle with it. So it's, it's, even if you think you know what the answer is, even if you think you have, you know, you've looked at it from every angle, resist the temptation to just go in and tell, tell what that, tell what that is because they'll, they'll reject it. And then eventually they'll ask you what you think if they respect that point of view. But if you just go in with the answer, that's they'll what they'll do is they'll figure out how to poke holes in it and then it's yours not theirs so the one key thing is to make it theirs you know it's interesting how efficient it feels to jump to the end but in the long term it's typically not efficient or effective right yeah i i couldn't agree more and you strategy is a i had we were we were talk interestingly enough we were talking about peace river and one of the mentors that I I had in my life, uh, a woman by the name of Emma Barnes Brown, used to be who's from that general vicinity, used to say it's really inconvenient that companies don't make decisions, human beings make decisions, and I'm really fond of that 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 point of view because she's absolutely right. And what you have to understand is that the end the end is someone making a decision, and they need to go through whatever process they're going to need to go through in order to arrive at a confident decision and take action on it. And so you have to be attuned with that, what that is. And the other thing about the process needing to be 
a little bit messy is it's unlikely that you'll arrive at a great idea, a great innovation, because I think of strategy and innovation as the same thing. We're just trying to make decisions that delight human beings in the future. Sometimes it's new stuff and that would be, that's the same thing, that's strategy and innovation. And so for me, it's unlikely that the first idea you come up with is going to be the best one. But how often do we get enamored with a particular idea and then just iterate on that one thing, as opposed to thinking through multiple possibilities for the way you might solve a particular problem. So that's another important principle that I that I ascribe to, Jess. Yeah, I mean, it brings up a number of questions for me. You know, actually, I want to back up. I want to, I want to ask something else. So for those of us who are not at the senior level of an organization that has 335,000 staff, okay, Help me understand or our listeners understand, what does a chief strategy officer do compared to a CEO? How do those interact? You know, because in so many ways, like you're hoping your CEO is super involved in strategy, right? And so how do those two roles work together? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a terrific question. If you're, I like, your CEO has to be the ultimate person responsible for the strategy. And I can think of no example of a company that I think that has a terrific strategy where the CEO isn't, you know, the either the chief communicator of it, the chief architect of it. And so I think of at Deloitte, I think of my responsibility is to make sure that our management team and our CEO is thinking about the right questions, right? Are we addressing all the questions that we need to address? Have we have we had the right discussions with all the different stakeholders at the firm? Have we thought about how we'll communicate it? Have we red teamed it in some way, shape or form. And so I think about the CEO gets to make the ultimate decisions about the components of the strategy and how we'll execute against it. And the chief strategist to me is responsible for making sure that we're doing all the things that are make it more likely that we'll get to a great answer. So if it if it if it's as simple as saying you own the pro the strategy officer owns the process and the CEO owns the decisions, I'm comfortable with that. I think it's in any good relationship, it's going to be dependent on the individuals, but you want to be having multiple conversations. You want to be iterating lots. And I think of the strategist as a provocateur, as a process owner, as a facilitator, as someone who brings uh, new data to the table where relevant. And so it's someone who, you know, fills the gap for what's needed to get to a great strategy outcome. Well, I'm interested in what some of those questions might be. So, you know, you guys are not Tesla where you're physically building a car. Like so much of your value is wrapped up in who you can get to come work for you, right? And what's going on between their ears. You know, when you think about the subject that gets brought up a lot around talent density, right? You know, in professional services, I mean, like that in so many ways, like that's what you've got. You've, you've got the talent and you've got the reputation that talent has created, right? What's a strategy question? When you think about helping, you know, a, a really well-respected professional services company continue to increase talent density, what's a question you would ask around that? Well, I, there's there, there are many. I would start with what we're addressing now, which is what should be the value proposition? What should be the way in which we get people to come to and stay at Deloitte? So what's, what is it that we're offering them beyond just a competitive, uh, a competitive wage? Because the market just tends to go up and up and up for wages if that's the only reason why people tend to work. And I think people today think of so much of themselves as their identities wrapped up in 
who they work for, what they do for a living. And so you need to have a compelling proposition to that. One of my competitors offered the other day that they would offer remote work to anyone who wanted it, all 40,000 of their employees. We think the answer is not going to be all remote or all in person. So what we're experimenting with right now is what's the right mix of hybrid that is first and foremost right now safe for our people and comfortable. And we understand that there are individuals with different risk profiles. There are people who are been cooped up in a Manhattan apartment for a year and a half with three roommates who all they want to do is get out of the house. And so we want to provide them with a safe office to go to. And there are other people who have maybe people with young kids who are wanting to wait until um, they feel like they won't bring home COVID to their kids. And so we understand that we're going to have a diverse workforce as it relates to what their individual needs are. And we think that what we want to do is be the platform for people to discover how they work and how they interact and still create great value for our clients. So that's a the, the, the nature of our hybrid work model is a big talent question now. Another one is how to drive uh, a diverse, inclusive, and equitable workforce right now. We just released our, our first transparency report. And we've got room to, we've got, while we're proud of what we've been able to accomplish over time, we've got definitely room to room to grow. We were spurred on actually by one of the provocateurs, Valerie Rainford, who we profile in the book, taught us that we need to disaggregate our data in order to really get at the different diverse groups within our, within our firm and how we could better create an experience for them. And that's super important because we believe that Diversity drives cognitive diversity, which drives the ability to help solve more complex and novel problems. And we can get into that in a bit. But those would be two of the questions that were two of the talent related questions that we're working with. And then maybe the last one I'll, I'll just leave you with, Jess, is the on the on the talent front, it's not enough to just hire amazing people. I would say that we do a great job of getting terrific people inside inside the firm. Our competitors would say the same. What we absolutely need to do is make sure that there is a Deloitte secret sauce in whatever we do, because then it just becomes like who can hire the best and it becomes a, a, a war of getting that particular talent and then people will just go for more money. I think there's got a coupled in a talent dense environment like us, there's got to be getting great people and then teaching them to do things that they couldn't do if they weren't at another place. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Um, I think one of the things you brought up that maybe I'll leave my next question off is thinking about this idea of how much we all have wrapped up in our identities and our self-image and how like, you know, humans in any in any century, in any culture, in any country, like there's a natural pecking order. There are people, humans are very, I took this great class at Stanford about power and when people don't understand it and don't respect it and the kind of friction it causes, right? And there is so much that like, especially like if you're the provider in your home and you go out places and the first people, the first question people ask is, so what do you do? And you're like at a conference and you know, that the answer to this question is going to decide whether they want to sit and talk to you or not. Like, it, it feels like it can be a rejection of us as a it's human It's a little being. icky. It's a little icky in a way. Right? It? Yes. And, like, I, so far I haven't met anyone who likes rejection, right? And so having, like, having an answer that at least we're proud of, even if the person we're not talking to, even if the person we're talking to doesn't think is that cool, right? 
that like, like you said, that identity, that self-image. So when you think about strategy, because so often huge amounts of marketing dollars go into how do we get our customers to prefer us? Mm -hmm. And then how do we get our staff to prefer us is like an afterthought. Like, aren't we paying them a paycheck? Why do we have to work so hard on that? Right? So I'm interested in any thoughts you have of like people who they want to improve, you know, that, that kind of like, I want to say pride, but like healthy pride, you know, like that, not I'm better than you pride, but that like, I'm proud to be here kind of pride or that, you know, I feel good about myself because I get to be a part of this team. Any thoughts about strategy for people who want to increase that number amongst their teams? Yeah. I mean, I think one is have them, the the principle that I've always uh, tried to espouse is make sure you're working on important stuff, right? Let's start with like, if you're, if you're working on important things, and they're important to the organization or important to the world, make sure that people on the other end feel that, right? They, they understand the weight and the why behind what you're doing. I think one of the things that people often do too much of in organizations, and I would say we do it, and I'd say I, I've seen this at clients, is they, they, the, they say, why do I need to do this thing? And the answer invariably is, well, so-and-so asked for it. Well, so-and-so probably had a good reason for why that was important. And I don't think we take enough time with our people in general to explain the why what they're doing is important. So one of the things that I think is really important is a concept and strategy that I learned from another mentor, Roger Martin, is nested strategies, right? So you might have a corporate strategy that cascades down to a business unit, that cascades down to a function. And everybody has a role in that strategy from the chief executive down to the front line, you know, the person serving the customer on the front line. If the frontline employee or everybody through that chain cannot explain the link to what they're doing and why it's important for the mission of the organization, then you're at risk of them feeling like this is just a job, right? This is just a job and I'm gonna leave for the next, I'm gonna leave for the next better thing that comes along. But when you do a terrific job saying, here's why you're doing the thing that you're doing and why that matters to what we're trying to do as an organization, you get an unbelievable amount of commitment. And then that person takes pride in what they're trying in what they're trying to do. And so I think we're all working on stuff that we think is important. And we just got to do a better job of of giving people the the why what they're doing and making sure we're hitting them both in the heart and the head would be the 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 lesson learned. I don't think it takes a lot of changing what they do. I think we just have to provide better context. You know, as you're saying that, I just wrote some notes to myself. You know, I think about our different companies at at Greystoke and like our team at Greystoke Advisors. These like you know special ops guys that go teach our leadership classes, right? Most of them are quite involved in our charity child rescue, and it's like a big advantage for us there. And as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm like, not everybody at Greystoke Media is as involved in child rescue. And at Greystoke Investments, like definitely not everybody, even though that's like so core to like why we exist as leadership team, I don't know that we have really given everybody the ability to participate in that when it's been such glue for a different part of our, a different you know company of ours. And I mean, it would actually be quite simple. We could just be doing the same things we do for our other team and let, have these teams like actually get to work on the issue of like helping change these kids' lives, right? Or or you could even just say, look, what you're, do, you know, what you're doing allows us to do these other things. It, it provides 
funding and this is something that we do. I think it would be great. Yeah, obviously, give them the chance to to participate. But even just connecting their work to some larger mission, I think is really important. I think we are learning. There's been a lot of research of late into the role that businesses should play in, in society and and the concept of stakeholder capitalism. And, and, and we're a member of the business roundtable. I think that this is Businesses now have a role, a clear seat at the table to make society better. And I think we've got to, we've got to step up to it. And I think what you're doing is a great example of that. That's interesting. You know, we typically like to cut these interviews in half. So we're about, we're about at, at time for part one. One of my favorite questions though, for guests is what's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? Yeah, this is, this is one, I have thought about this question a lot and it comes down to, like, there is one quote that I got from my old boss at Forbes magazine, Jim Barian, who told me, and I was his director of strategy. It was more like a chief of staff kind of role, which was lots of fun. It got me to New York and I learned a lot from Jim. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, Steve, just whenever you're working with me, always make an error of commission as opposed to an error of omission. And I just love that advice. And that's sort of like the roots of the provoke do something. And he was just basically, what, and what he did in that simple phrase was so powerful because he gave me not only the, the impetus to act and do stuff, but he gave me the psychological safety to know that if I made a mistake in trying something, it was okay. Right. He wasn't going to chop my head off. He wasn't going to chop my head off for trying something or or making a mistake. So he combined in that really simple phrase, like, it's OK to try something. I'm not going to chop your head off and just make sure what you're when, when you're mistaking something, it's by doing something, not by avoiding doing something. So that's been that's a that's a great piece of advice. It is a great piece of advice. Well, let's do this. Why don't you give us why don't you give us the elevator pitch for the book again and then tell people the best places if they want to go buy it. So. The, the thing that I would say about the, the book is that what it tries to do is encapsulate the human fatal flaws that prevent us from taking action when trends that are critical to our business move from a matter of if they'll happen to a matter of when they'll happen. And the example that we start the book off is a meeting I had in roughly 2008 with a executive in a media company. And I brought along with another one of my partners some curious data about some customer behavior that we had been observing for one of their one of their competitors. And their competitor actually asked us to take it to them to share just to see what they thought because it was so curious. It was it was that there was a small segment, less than two percent of the population, that was not wanting video programming along with their phone and internet. In fact, they didn't want a phone either. All they wanted was really robust internet. So Jess, you can sort of see the dog in the picture already because we're 12 years later. This was the first example of cord cutting behavior. But the executive basically said, nah, that can't be happening. Then he started to question, how many people did you survey? What was your P value? How did you ask the question? It was all this, the minutia about the survey. And I'm sure they had lots of other people analyze and analyze and analyze. In the meantime, the ability to take action on that passed that particular company by. And of course, we know that Netflix took advantage of the value of, of converting people from appointment television 
to streaming television, which is an which is an undeniably better experience than appointment television. Why? Because I get the same stuff, except I just get to watch it when I want to watch it on my terms. And so, why? Who wouldn't want that? Um, that it was not a matter of if that would happen at that moment. It was a matter of when someone was going to do it, and that executive, by ignoring that trend chose not to act and gave up a lot of gave up a lot of value. And we know that a lot of the media companies today are trying to launch launch with different uh, degrees of success their own streaming competitors to to Netflix, but that's an example of where the, the data was available. You could have you could have created it, you could have created it if you took action. And it's not that we think just that people are stupid or evil. It's that we're all subject to human biases, these cognitive biases that prevent, that that make us blind to some of these trends. And when you combine those cognitive biases with the way we tend to interact in organizations, like avoiding embarrassment in meetings and taking things offline and, and ducking tough questions, we create blinders that narrow an organization's peripheral vision and prevent them from seeing the phase change that's happening with some really critical trends. So in the book, we talk about those biases, those fatal flaws. We give five different ways that companies can take action based on the phase, the, the state of the phase change, starting from early in the if stage to later in the in the when stage. And then we profile three amazing provocateurs, mostly from the world of, of purpose and nonprofit. So we, we profiled Debbie Beal, who's a co-founder of Posse, sorry, the founder of Posse, which is a great nonprofit foundation that sends underprivileged kids to college. Ryan Gravel, who is the visionary behind the Atlanta Beltline. And we mentioned Valerie Rainford earlier, who has had a storied career at the Federal Reserve and J.P. Morgan, where she was the leader in driving diverse talent at J.P. Morgan. They've had tremendous success with their with driving a greater proportion of black leaders in their organization. And of course, you Love can it. get the book at booksellers everywhere, including uh, including Amazon. <laughs> that's a great that's a great pitch everybody go get your go get your own copy of provoke and i've got a bunch more questions for steven so tune back in for those thanks everyone